from BBC Radio 4, Britain's biggest paranormal podcast, is going on a road trip. I thought in that moment, oh my God, we've summoned something from this board. This is Uncanny USA. He says, somebody's in the house, and I screamed. Listen to Uncanny USA wherever you get your BBC podcasts. If you dare. I'm Jack Armstrong. He's Joe Getty. We're the Armstrong and Getty Show. We cover the stories the mainstream media ignores. Stories that are important to your life and important to the world. The election, of course. The many trials of Donald Trump. Couple of wars. Gender-bending madness. Why are kids looking at so much social media? And we bring you the stories the mainstream media is on. But we do it without the left-wing media spin. Listen to Armstrong and Getty On Demand on America's number one podcast network, iHeart. Open your free iHeart app and search the Armstrong and Getty Show to start listening. The Big Take from Bloomberg News brings you what's shaping the world's economies with the smartest and best-informed business reporters around the world. We cover the stories behind what's moving money in markets and help you understand what's happening, what it means, and why it matters every afternoon. I'm Sarah Holder. I'm Saleh Mosin, And I'm David Gura. Listen to The Big Take on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. There's a lot happening these days, but I have just the thing to get you up to speed on what matters without taking too much of your time. The 7 from the Washington Post is a podcast that gives you the seven most important and interesting stories, and we always try to save room for something fun. You get it all in about seven minutes or less. I'm Hannah Jewell. I'll get you caught up with The 7 every weekday. So follow The 7 right now. On this episode of Newt's World, Theodore Roosevelt Jr. was born in New York City on October 27, 1858. He was born into a well-to-do family. He was homeschooled and went to Harvard College. He dropped out of Columbia Law School to enter local New York politics. In September 1901, at the age of 42, he became the 26th President of the United States after President William McKinley was assassinated. Roosevelt was a leader of the progressive movement, and he championed his square-deal domestic policies, promising the average citizen fairness, breaking of trusts, regulation of railroads, and pure food and drugs. After leaving office, Roosevelt traveled the world, including trips to Africa and South America. He was a lifelong conservationist. He passed away in his sleep at his home, Sagamore Hill in Cove Neck, New York, on January 5th, 1919 at the age of 60. I want to share with you the human whirlwind that was Theodore Roosevelt. Roosevelt was amazing both as an individual and because in some ways he personified the America that was emerging at the beginning of the 20th century. I find him to be one of the most extraordinary American presidents just because of the sheer range that he was capable of doing. He was obviously extraordinarily bright and wrote at a very early age a guide to birds in New York State. 
He wrote a history of the Naval War of 1812, which is still considered a remarkable book. And that, by the way, was done at a very early age, I think in his early 20s. So here you got this guy who is born relatively weak, had asthma, and really went to work building up his physical strength, became ultimately a cowboy, was driven to be successful, to be unique. And while he was doing all of that, he got involved in politics. But it's fascinating because he didn't fit any pattern that you could have imagined. On the one hand, he was a Roosevelt and therefore, in effect, part of the aristocracy of that time, the kind of person who went to Harvard, the kind of person who had lots of nice outfits and went to nice events. On the other hand, he was a politician and he was determined to rise in politics. There's a great line where one of his friends says to him, how can you go out to these German and Irish bars and be hanging out with those normal working people? And Roosevelt's response was simple. He said, look, power in this city is in those bars. I want to be part of how decisions are made. Now, you don't need to go to those bars, but then you're always going to be on the outside. And you're always going to come to somebody who's in the bar to get the decision made. And I want to be in that room. I want to do that. And Roosevelt went out at a very early age and began developing a whole series of activities. He was always a reformer. I think it was partly because he had this edge to him. On the one hand, he's sort of a Puritan in his toughness and in his desire to fix things and improve things. On the other hand, he loved life so much that he just kind of bubbled over. I mean, you have to think of him almost as a pot on the stove where every day things are coming out of the pot and you have no idea what's going to happen next. So, for example, at one point he becomes the police commissioner of New York City. And he decides he'll actually enforce the law. And the law said that you couldn't have bars and saloons open on Sunday. So he closed them. Well, people were enraged because he was violating the way in which they had historically operated. And he said, well, if you want them open, change the law. But as long as I'm the police commissioner, we're closing them, at which point, of course, they fired him because they didn't want to get involved in this. And he had a certain lack of common sense in that sense. And he was so driven that again and again, he would do things that would irritate people. He was very active in the Republican Party. And in fact, in the election of 1896, it is Roosevelt and the mayor of Syracuse who come up with the best argument against William Jennings Bryan an argument which is then picked up by William McKinley. And McKinley promptly, when the election's over and he's won, gives Roosevelt the appointment as the number two person in the Navy Department. And one weekend, the Secretary of the Navy happens to be gone. And Roosevelt, on his own hook, sends out a note saying that he wants the American fleet under Dewey, which at that point was sitting in Hong Kong, and he wants them to go to Manila. Now, he had no authority to do that. He just did it. And luckily for us, when the Spanish-American War broke out, the American fleet was ready to defeat the Spanish in the Battle of Manila Bay. And Roosevelt was heroic, even though he had totally exceeded his authority. Before that, his wife, who he adored, had died. He was very depressed. And he went out to the Dakotas 
bought a ranch and became a genuine rancher. Now, again, remember, this is a guy who starts in life sort of weak physically, builds himself up, becomes a boxer, becomes a rider, ends up now leaving behind all of his social friends, all of the Harvard connections, and is out there ranching and having a great time and recovering from the death of his wife, and at one point actually helps arrest several rustlers. He's genuinely a man of the West, and that becomes an advantage to him when the war breaks out with Spain because he organizes what were called Colonel Roosevelt's Rough Riders, a regiment that he pulled together of volunteers. Teddy is bringing friends of his from the Dakotas who are showing up, Native Americans, cowboys, and the New York Polo Club is sending people because, after all, it's Theodore Roosevelt. So he is blending together these very elegant Ivy League polo players and these very inelegant cowboys and Native Americans into the Rough Riders. And they actually end up getting along very well and end up charging up San Juan Hill, although technically it wasn't San Juan Hill, but is on Kettle Hill towards the San Juan Heights. But everybody at the time said it was San Juan Hill. As somebody once said, if you have to choose between fact and legend, print the legend. So Roosevelt comes home, having led this heroic charge up the hill, and he's a genuine war hero. Next, the anti-corruption candidate, Roosevelt becomes governor of New York, then vice president of the United States. And at the end of this episode, I'll give you an audio sneak peek of chapter one of my new novel, Shakedown. I'm Katia Adler, host of The Global Story. Over the last 25 years, I've covered conflicts in the Middle East, political and economic crises in Europe, drug cartels in Mexico. Now I'm covering the stories behind the news all over the world in conversation with those who break it. Join me Monday to Friday to find out what's happening, why, and what it all means. Follow The Global Story from the BBC wherever you listen to podcasts. This is the story of The One. As head of maintenance at a concert hall, he knows the show must always go on. That's why he works behind the scenes, ensuring every light is working, the HVAC is humming, and his facility shines. With Granger's supplies and solutions for every challenge he faces, plus 24-7 customer support, his venue never misses a beat. Call quickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done. I'm Jack Armstrong. He's Joe Getty. We're the Armstrong and Getty Show. We cover the stories the mainstream media ignores. The stories that are important to your life and important to the world. The election, of course. The many trials of Donald Trump. Couple of wars. Gender-bending madness. Why are kids looking at so much social media? And we bring you the stories the mainstream media is on. But we do it without the left-wing media spin. Listen to Armstrong and Getty On Demand on America's number one podcast network, iHeart. Open your free iHeart app and search the Armstrong and Getty Show to start listening. I bet you're smart. Yeah, and you like to hold your own in the group chat. We can help you drop even more knowledge. My name is Martine Powers. And I'm Elahe Izadi. We host a daily news podcast called Post Reports. Every weekday afternoon, Post Reports takes you inside an important and interesting story with the kind of reporting that you can only get from The Washington Post. You can listen to Post Reports wherever you get your podcasts. Go find it now and hit follow.
And here's where it gets interesting. Roosevelt is a reformer. And the New York machine hated him. But they had a problem. They'd had a little bit of corruption. And they were going to lose the next governor's race and all the patronage and all the contracting power and all the money. And so they needed somebody to be their front man. And so they went to Roosevelt and said, look, you're a hero and we want you to run for governor. And Roosevelt, who always was willing to take the next opportunity that came along, and in that sense, he's a little bit like Winston Churchill, and that his life is a continuing series of enormously energetic gambles. So he runs for the governor of New York, and he runs with a train which is celebrating the charge up San Juan Hill. He has rough riders with him. They have people who can play the bugle. They basically are whipping up the patriotism. If you were a patriot, you were for Theodore Roosevelt. And if you just were one of those people who wanted Tammany Hall back to, with its corruption, then you were going to vote for the other guy. So he wins, and he is now the governor of the largest state in the country. And that leads to a very different situation because it turns out that Roosevelt really is, as he has always been, a reformer. And so he uses the governorship to start reforming New York state government. Well, the machine is horrified. I mean, they elected him to keep power so that they could use the power for their own enrichment. And here he is taking apart their system. So they want to get rid of him. They're desperate to get him out of the state. And along comes an opportunity for Roosevelt to become the vice presidential nominee. And there's a great story that McKinley's great advisor, one of the greatest managers in American political history, was not in town the day this decision was made. And he turned and he said when he was told about it, do you realize there's only one heartbeat between that damn cowboy and the White House? And in fact, McKinley was shot and died. And here you are in 1901 with Theodore Roosevelt as president. Now, you could not possibly, in early 1897, before the Spanish-American War, you couldn't possibly have figured out how four short years later, Theodore Roosevelt would end up being president. But he was president. And when he became president, he was the most sophisticated populist to occupy the White House in modern times. For example, he understood that the Associated Press, which at that time was the dominant method of communicating for the news media in the country, the Associated Press every Sunday night had a huge hold on what it was covering. There was nothing going on. And yet they had to fill up for the Monday morning papers. So every Sunday afternoon, Roosevelt would issue a statement, which would get picked up and given huge coverage because it met the Associated Press's need to have something. And so Roosevelt began to become much better known than any president since Abraham Lincoln. He was also just an amazingly personable guy. At one point, he's boxing in the White House, and the retina of one of his eyes is detached, and he can't see, and he doesn't want his wife to learn that he had just lost sight in one of his eyes. <laughs> So he kept boxing, but trying to avoid the guy hitting him on that side of his head. And he would do stuff like this all the time. He was an archer. He was a hunter. One of the things that made him amazingly popular was in 1902, he went on a hunting trip out west. And there was a bear cub 
that somebody had tied to a tree so Roosevelt could shoot him. And Roosevelt said, I'm not going to kill a bear cub. Are you crazy? Well, a Brooklyn toy maker decided that he would create a stuffed bear, which at the time was called Teddy's Bear, and then became, of course, a teddy bear. And it became wildly popular. And so here you have a president who is continuing to be sort of slightly a wild man, but he's a wild man with a big smile, and people love him. He has so much energy, he's bouncing all over the place, so lots of people get to see him. In 1905, his daughter Alice marries Nicholas Longworth, a congressman from Ohio, and it was the biggest social event of the decade. Somebody once said of Roosevelt that to truly understand Teddy, you have to recognize he wants to be the bride at every wedding and the corpse at every funeral. It really was how Roosevelt operated. It was his whole excitement about life. He wrote constantly, he had published many books, and he had a pretty serious sense of what he believed in and what he was trying to do. And he was faced with a huge crisis in 1902 because it was a big coal strike. And it became obvious during the coal strike that the mine owners thought that they were more powerful than the United States government. And Roosevelt brought them into the White House and he said, look, here's the situation. I am the president of the United States. I am prepared to send the U.S. Army in to take over your mines. So unless you want to lose control of your mines, potentially permanently, you're going to sit down and work out a deal with the strikers. And I just want all of you to remember, I'm the president and you're not. And it was the first really big imposition of executive power on large businesses in America and it stunned them. They began also to create a gap between the reform Republicans and the old guard. And the old guard was in favor of the big businesses. And the reformers were in favor of the public interest at large and were willing to take on the big businesses. And Roosevelt clearly was in the group that was in favor of taking on big business. It wasn't that he was for small things. It's important to remember that there have been several efforts to build a canal across the Isthmus, both in Nicaragua and in Panama. And actually, one of the more fun things was, as they were trying to decide whether to go to Nicaragua or to Panama, one of the people who favored Panama convinced the post office to issue a series of stamps showing volcanoes going off in Nicaragua. And that was one of the more subtle examples of lobbying, because people began to figure out, well, gosh, if they have all those volcanoes, maybe that's not the right place to put the canal. However, Panama was owned by Colombia. Colombia had a contract with the French who had failed. There were a number of technical problems digging the canal. And in addition, yellow fever killed the workers at an alarming rate. And in 1903, probably with the encouragement of the United States, there was a rebellion in Panama. And the United States happened to have a warship nearby which happened to block the Colombian Navy from going back to impose order. And therefore, it was fair to say that Roosevelt invented Panama in order to build the canal. He then undertook a project which would take until 1914 to complete. And if you've ever been to the Panama Canal, you realize what a huge engineering achievement this was. It was also a huge public health achievement because, in fact, Walter Reed was the medical doctor for the U.S. Army, and he discovered how to stop 
yellow fever, and the result was an enormous improvement in health. So Roosevelt undertakes what is an enormous project and changes history. I mean, the Panama Canal has been a major part of world commerce. It's been a major part of American national security because it allows us to move ships back and forth between the Atlantic and Pacific dramatically faster than if you have to go all the way around South America. The Russians and the Japanese have been fighting a very, very tough war. The Russians had been losing, but the Japanese were running out of money, and so they were pretty desperate to find a solution. And Roosevelt invited them both to come to New Hampshire, to Portsmouth, where they had a peace conference in 1904. And Roosevelt got them to sign an agreement ending the war. And in 1906, he got the Nobel Peace Prize. Here is a many ways a militaristic personality, a guy who cheerfully went off to war in Cuba, a guy who cheerfully sent the Navy off to war in Manila, and yet he is a very, very good diplomat, very successful. And as you can imagine, somewhere between the Panama Canal, Teddy's Bear, and everything else he was doing, he was wildly popular. And in 1904, and the only time he really had run up to that point nationally because he was the vice presidential nominee under McKinley in 1900, but he beat the Democratic contender, Alton Parker, 336 to 140 in electoral votes, and the margin was just enormous. I would say Roosevelt may have, at his peak, been the most popular American president since George Washington, that people just really liked him. They thought he personified American nationalism, that his energy, his drive, he was also daring. In 1909, he becomes the first president to ride in a car which at that period was a fairly daring thing to do. I've always liked the story that in 1906, Roosevelt was eating breakfast while he was reading Upton Sinclair's The Jungle, which has a scene in which a worker falls into a vat and becomes sausage. And Roosevelt was halfway through his breakfast sausage as he read this scene, and he promptly sent up a note to create the Food and Drug Administration. Now, I don't know that that's totally true, but it's always struck me as such a wonderfully apocryphal story that it should be true. Roosevelt was an activist in foreign policy. In 1905, he forced the Dominican Republic to install an American economic advisor, who's really, for all practical purposes, the country's financial director running it as an economic protectorate. In 1906, he set up a military protectorate in Cuba. He put pressure on Canada in a boundary dispute over Alaska. So again, he's constantly doing things. Because he loved the outdoors and because he was part of the progressive reform wing of the Republican Party, he urged Congress to create the Forest Service so that the government would manage their forest reserves in a professional way. He developed almost five times as much land as all of his predecessors combined. In fact, Roosevelt set aside 194 million acres. By 1907, he has a real diplomatic quarrel because the Japanese government is very angry about anti-Japanese sentiment in California, and he works out what was called the Gentleman's Agreement, in which, in effect, we would not pass laws against the Japanese, but the Japanese government would restrict Japanese immigration. So a sort of a face-saving win-win. In 1908, his hand-picked successor succeeded him, and this was one of the sad moments, if you will, in American politics. William Howard Taft was a remarkable man physically enormous, and had been a very successful governor of the Philippines, came from a very successful Cincinnati legal family, 
would ultimately later in his life become the Chief Justice of the Supreme Court. Taft was a very smart, very sincere guy. Roosevelt thought he would act as Roosevelt's disciple. And after Taft won in 1908, Roosevelt left the country in order to give Taft the time to be on his own, to get things done without Roosevelt looking over his shoulder. The thing that's fascinating is Roosevelt tours Europe where they're all thrilled to see him, and he's received as a gigantic celebrity. He goes to Africa where he shoots everything he can and sends it back to the American Museum of Natural History or the Smithsonian. Then he comes home and he realizes that Taft has, in fact, fundamentally undermined what Roosevelt was doing. And it's a fact that Roosevelt really thought that Taft would be his disciple. Taft really came to the conclusion that Roosevelt was wrong and that Taft actually was part of the traditional wing of the party that did not favor reform. And so Taft was in many ways siding with the old guard against Roosevelt. So Roosevelt decides that he has an obligation to run for president and take on Taft. Next, on the campaign trail, Roosevelt survives an assassination attempt. And stay tuned. At the end of this episode, I'll give you an audio sneak peek of my new novel, Shakedown. I'm Katia Adler, host of The Global Story. Over the last 25 years, I've covered conflicts in the Middle East, political and economic crises in Europe, drug cartels in Mexico. Now I'm covering the stories behind the news all over the world in conversation with those who break it. Join me Monday to Friday to find out what's happening, why, and what it all means. Follow The Global Story from the BBC wherever you listen to podcasts. I'm Jack Armstrong. He's Joe Getty. We're the Armstrong and Getty Show. We cover the stories the mainstream media ignores. Stories that are important to your life and important to the world. The election, of course. The many trials of Donald Trump. Couple of wars. Gender-bending madness. Why are kids looking at so much social media? And we bring you the stories the mainstream media is on. But we do it without the left-wing media spin. Listen to Armstrong and Getty On Demand on America's number one podcast network, iHeart. Open your free iHeart app and search the Armstrong and Getty Show to start listening. Hi, I'm Michael Rappaport. And I'm Kibi Rappaport. And together we're hosting Rappaport's, Rappaport's Reality, reality Podcast. Podcast. We have a passion for reality TV, and we're inviting you into our living room. We're talking tea, we're dissecting the drama, and we're giving praise to the single greatest form of entertainment on television today. That is right. Reality TV is the greatest form of entertainment on television today. Here are some examples of what you'll hear from us on Rappaport's Reality Podcast. This is where we discuss all things reality TV, all things popular culture. And a little bit of Rappaport's reality, the reality of bit. us. We're a figuring out. And if we had been recording these last four or five days, Ooh. it, it would have been, Ooh, a, been the podcast juicy. would have taken a, a, a left turn. Listen to Rappaport's reality with me, Kibi Rappaport. And me, Michael Rappaport, on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcast, or wherever you get your podcast. There's a lot happening these days, but I have just the thing to get you up to speed on what matters without taking too much of your time. 
The Seven from the Washington Post is a podcast that gives you the seven most important and interesting stories, and we always try to save room for something fun. You get it all in about seven minutes or less. I'm Hannah Jewell. I'll get you caught up with The Seven every weekday. So follow The Seven right now. This was the very beginning of the period when there were primaries. Most states still picked their delegates in closed systems where the power, the bosses really had control. Where there were primaries, Roosevelt won decisively. Where the people could directly express themselves with their votes, Roosevelt won. But there weren't enough primaries. And so where there weren't primaries, William Howard Taft won. Well, Roosevelt wasn't about to allow the party bosses to cheat him of the nomination. So Roosevelt decides that he has no choice except to run as a third-party candidate, and he becomes the most important third-party candidate in American history, and in fact gets more votes than William Howard Taft. In the middle of that is a perfectly Rooseveltian moment. He's out campaigning as a third party. It was called the Bull Moose Party, and sort of in honor of Roosevelt himself. And on October 14th, 1912. And he's campaigning in Milwaukee. He's giving a speech and he's shot. Now, the fact is that the bullet went through his overcoat, a 50-page manuscript, a steel eyeglass case, and then lodged in his chest. He coughed into his hand. There was no blood. So he concluded that the bullet did not enter his lung. So he ignored the effort to get him to go to a doctor and finished his speech. Well, imagine the electrifying effect of a guy who was that strong, that courageous. His line was, I don't know whether you fully understand that I have been shot, but it takes more than that to kill a bull moose. The doctors actually, when they did finally look at him, decided it was safer to leave the bullet in his chest, and it stayed there for the rest of his life. The person who shot him was John Fleming Schrank. Schrank opposed a sitting president's ability to seek a third term in office, and he had a bizarre dream where he was advised by the ghost of William McKinley to avenge his death while pointing to a picture of Theodore Roosevelt. Actually, in Schrank's case, the doctors decided he was suffering from, quote, insane delusions, grandiose in character, declared him insane, and he was sentenced to a mental hospital in Wisconsin where he remained until his death. After he loses the presidency in 1912, splitting the Republican vote in such a way that Woodrow Wilson becomes the first Democratic president since 1892, Roosevelt then goes off to Brazil, goes up the Amazon, catches several really bad diseases, almost dies. A remarkable story of his entire trip on the Amazon. It's one of those places where he just pushed his luck, and he was getting older. He was sort of a little bit worn down. And then he almost really did have a serious problem and took a long time to recover. When World War I broke out, Roosevelt was very pro-English, really wanted to help the Allies, tried to convince Woodrow Wilson to let him serve. Wilson would not do that. His sons did serve in the military, and in fact, Theodore Roosevelt Jr. landed at Normandy in 1944, carrying a cane, wandering around as a brigadier general, helping get people off the beach. So the Roosevelt family tradition continued. I think that to really understand Theodore Roosevelt's importance, you have to go almost to psychology and culture. 
he came for most Americans to personify a sense of certainty, a sense of can-doism, a sense of optimism. He was adamant that we all are Americans, that he did not want hyphenated people. He didn't want Greek Americans or Italian Americans or African Americans. He wanted everyone to be an American. He was enormously proud of the country. People, I think, identified with him. They identified with his energy. They identified with his good humor. They identified with his sense of grandiose dreams. He thought big. He thought we were a big country, and he wanted us to do big things. He also wanted people to live a big life. So he pushed people pretty hard to say, get out there and get involved. One of his most stirring statements was about the man in the arena, the person who actually is trying to get the job done and that nobody else outside the arena understands what it's like to be the man in the arena. I once had the remarkable experience of having Richard Nixon read me that passage. And you could tell that after his resignation from office and trying to rethink and sort of recenter his own life, that Nixon found Roosevelt comforting in the idea that he, Nixon, had also been in the arena. And I think it was this sense for most Americans that Roosevelt was in the arena every day of his life. And in a sense, he woke up each morning and tried to figure out where the arena was. And he went there and he carried people with him. And I think that of all the presidents, you can make an argument that no one so captured our imagination between Lincoln and FDR as Theodore Roosevelt did, and that he personified a kind of reform republicanism that was very much in favor of national parks, of the scientific management of forests, of concern for conserving animals. While he was a hunter, he was a hunter who wanted to make sure that the species flourished and that every generation had an opportunity to be out in the wilderness. He was also an American nationalist. Part of that probably came because he was a child of the Civil War era and had grown up surrounded by people who fought for the Union and took it very, very seriously. Partly because, you know, seeing in his generation, we were now the biggest economy in the world. Roosevelt sponsored the development of the Navy, both as the Assistant Secretary of the Navy under McKinley, and then as President, he sent the Great White Fleet around the world. It only had enough money to get halfway around the world, and he said, well, Congress has a choice. They can either pass the rest of the money and we'll bring them home, or they can let the fleet stay in Japan, knowing that, of course, Congress would collapse and pay for it. But that was typical of Roosevelt. They would send the modern battle fleet of the United States without congressional approval, using up all of the money to get them halfway around the world, and then dare the Congress to not finish it up. And, of course, they caved and did exactly what he wanted. Roosevelt, I think, would have been successful in any part of American history because he had the energy, he had the intelligence, he had the drive, he wanted it that badly, and he was really good with people. So on the one hand, you have this huge intellect. On the other hand, you have this frenzied physical behavior, and then you have this guy who just is charming. And all of it comes together. If you get a chance someday to go to his home in Long Island, it's absolutely worth the visit, and you get a flavor of just the guy who jumped up in the morning living life to the fullest, ran all day long, collapsed at the end of the day, got enough sleep to jump up the next morning and live life to the fullest. And I think that's the kind of America that Theodore Roosevelt hoped we would become 
and why I think he really is in many ways an immortal. At a time when many Americans are divided, unsure of the nature of our country, not certain about the future, there are few presidents who can offer us more hope, more insight, and a greater sense of what being an American potentially is all about than Theodore Roosevelt. And that's why I think it's particularly useful to look at Teddy's life, think about what Teddy did, and ask ourselves, what is it we can learn from him that can make our future and our children's future even better? You can read more about the life of Teddy Roosevelt on our show page at newtsworld.com. Newt's World is produced by Gingrich 360 and iHeartMedia. Our executive producer is Debbie Myers, and our producer is Garnsey Sloan. The artwork for the show was created by Steve Penley. Thank you to the team at Gingrich 360. Please email me with your comments at newt at newtsworld.com. If you've been enjoying Newt's World, I hope you'll go to Apple Podcast and both rate us with five stars and give us a review so others can learn what it's all about. Thanks for listening to Newt's World. And now, a special sneak peek of my new novel, Shakedown. Here is chapter one. The old man bent down, tried, but couldn't slip the envelope under his neighbor's door, checked the empty hallway, turned and began walking toward the floor's elevator while pulling a pistol from under his jacket, pressed the call button, and took a deep breath to calm his nerves. Ding! He tightened his index finger on the handgun's trigger, anticipating the opening doors. Sucked in another calming breath. No one was inside. Tucked his handgun between his belt and watermelon belly. Stepped inside. The building's lobby was empty. The security guard had gone home at 10 p.m. The condo board didn't believe it necessary to have him stay longer. Their Roslyn, Virginia neighborhood was relatively crime-free. The man walked to a wall of mailboxes directly across from the elevator, ran a finger along the tenant's mailboxes, stopping at the second box in the third column, his neighbor's. He inserted the envelope into it. From his jacket, he drew a second envelope, which he dropped in the outgoing mail. Behind him, the sound of laughter. A couple entering the building through its double glass doors. The man at the mailboxes noticed that the woman was younger, giggling holding her male companion's arm. Her loud chatter and wobbly walk suggested she was drunk, a Saturday night date, perhaps a one-night stand. The condo building was across the Potomac River from the nation's capital, an inexpensive Uber ride from popular Georgetown pickup bars. The approaching couple appeared harmless. Still, the man returned to the elevator and pushed the call button, hoping to board and depart before they reached him. The couple quickened their pace. The old man reached inside his jacket, resting his hand on his pistol. He noticed that she was wearing a gray wool stocking cap and scarf. He wore a red Washington Nationals baseball cap, and the collar of his dark blue coat was turned up. Difficult to see faces. The elevator doors opened. The woman straightened, lunged forward, grabbed the old man's left arm. At the same moment, her male accomplice slipped in front of him, a blade before the old man could draw his handgun, directly into his heart, 
One thrust, one twist. No time to cry out. Who would hear? The woman steadied him, pushed the man's body forward. He hit the elevator floor hard, face first, its doors shut. I'm Newt Gingrich. This is Newt's World. I'm Katia Adler, host of The Global Story. Over the last 25 years, I've covered conflicts in the Middle East, political and economic crises in Europe, drug cartels in Mexico. Now I'm covering the stories behind the news all over the world in conversation with those who break it. Join me Monday to Friday to find out what's happening, why, and what it all means. Follow The Global Story from the BBC wherever you listen to podcasts. I'm Jack Armstrong. He's Joe Getty. We're the Armstrong and Getty Show. We cover the stories the mainstream media ignores. The stories that are important to your life and important to the world. The election, of course. The many trials of Donald Trump. Couple of wars. Gender-bending madness. Why are kids looking at so much social media? And we bring you the stories the mainstream media is on. But we do it without the left-wing media spin. Listen to Armstrong and Getty On Demand on America's number one podcast network, iHeart. Open your free iHeart app and search the Armstrong and Getty Show to start listening. I'm Saleya Mosin, and I've covered economic policy for years and reported on how it impacts people across the United States. In 2016, I saw how voters were leaning towards Trump and how so many Americans felt misunderstood by Washington. So I started The Big Take D.C. We dig into how money, politics and power shape government and the consequences for voters. With new episodes every Thursday, you can listen to The Big Take D.C. on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. The Big Take from Bloomberg News brings you what's shaping the world's economies with the smartest and best-informed business reporters around the world. We cover the stories behind what's moving money in markets and help you understand what's happening, what it means, and why it matters every afternoon. I'm Sarah Holder. I'm Saleh Mosin, And I'm David Gura. Listen to The Big Take on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.